Good morning, church. It is good to be with y'all this morning. Just a real, real quick, I, I want to welcome everybody. Uh, everybody online, welcome. We're glad you're joining us. Uh, everybody that's here, thanks for being here. If you're a visitor, welcome. If you're a, a regular attender or a member, welcome back. This is what I love to do. I love to be here on Sunday mornings uh, preaching or teaching or just being ministered to. And uh, thank you guys for giving me that opportunity. I, my son grabbed a hold of my Bible and he pulled out my outline and he saw it was only two pages and he was like, Dad, how, how long do you think it will take us to finish church today? And he grabbed my outline and he saw it was only two pages. And he says, Dad, what's this? I was like, that's my outline, buddy. He's like, it's only two pages? I said, yeah. He said, oh, we're going to be done really early today. <laughs> so uh, this morning we're starting a sermon series called War Ready. And I prayed about how to start this. I, I, I'm going to use an illustration I've used before, but I really do feel like this is the way that God would have me to start. Um, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians, and you can turn in your Bible as I'm kind of introducing our series. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll be preaching verses 10 through 13. And in this sermon, War Ready, we're going to be talking about the nature of the war that we all as uh, Christian men and women are in. About seven years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to attend a speech given by uh, former President George W. Bush. And in the speech, he took us, uh, those of us who are in the audience, kind of on a tour of the Oval Office in a way to help us understand what it was like for him being president. And he, he spoke about each picture and artifact and relic in the Oval Office and tied each of those into an experience he had in his presidency. And near the end of the speech, he took us back to the time he's in the elementary school classroom where he's participating with kids who are being taught how to read. And that was on September 11th. And so as he's sitting in the classroom and is participating in these reading activities with these kids, he said, I had an aide come into the room and they whispered in my ear that a plane had crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And he said, the first thought that crossed my mind the second I was notified was that, man, somebody has made a terrible mistake. This is a tragic accident. So he said, I kept, I kept participating and I kept watching the kids as they were learning to read and, and I kept interacting with them. And then the aide comes in again and a second time said, Mr. President, an airplane has crashed into the same tower of the World Trade Center. And he said, at that moment, the, I knew we were under attack. That moment I knew it wasn't an accident, it was a deliberate attack. He said, I decided to stay there and participate with the kids a while longer, and pretty soon an aide came in again and said, Mr. President, a third plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. And he said, at that, moment, at that moment, I knew we were at war. The first time, it was a tragic accident. The second time, it was a deliberate attack. The third time was an act of war. And a lot of you under the sound of my voice are being attacked over and over and over and over again. But these are attacks in a war that you cannot see with your own two eyes. 
And because you can't see it, you're either dismissing it or choosing not to engage in the war. And so you're walking around like war doesn't exist. You're not ready for war. And it's our hope in this series that we can prepare you to be war ready. Because friend, I want to tell you, like it or not, you're in the middle of a battle right now, today. And so if you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, we're going to get the beginning part of our text this morning. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now, to really get the sense for what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, we've got to know who it is that is speaking to us. Who is the Apostle Paul? So if you turn into your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 25, I want to give you a little bit of background on who this guy Paul is and how is it that he can speak authoritatively to us about finding strength in the Lord. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, the Bible says, and this is the Apostle Paul talking, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. The Apostle Paul had lived through attack after attack after attack after attack. He was going about doing the business of the Lord and he knew intimately and personally what it was like to be in that battle. And the Apostle Paul didn't have a phone he could pick up and contact his local authorities. He didn't have a one-way line to a state senator or a representative that could call in the National Guard every time he reached a hostile area that was sin-sick and morally depraved. The Apostle Paul in each one of these situations had to depend on the power and might of the Lord. When we get to heaven, we get to ask the Apostle Paul, man, what, what was your mind thinking as you were in the middle of some of these warlike tragedies and trials? What, what, what did you think of to gather some strength? The Apostle Paul would have been an expert on the Old Testament. My mind goes to a few of my personal favorite Old Testament stories that clearly demonstrate the power of the Lord. The first one is the parting of the Red Sea. This is in Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. Moses is leading the Israelites from bondage and slavery in Egypt out towards the land of promise. And on either side of Moses and the Israelites, at this part of the story, there's desert and mountains. And dead ahead, there's an impassable physical boundary. It's the Red Sea. And behind them is a whole army of enemy combatants ready to re-enslave them. They got nowhere to look. They look left 
It's desert and mountains. They look right, it's desert and mountain. They look dead ahead, it's an impassable physical boundary. It's the Red Sea. And they look behind them and here comes the impending frustration and terror of this combative army trying to re-enslave them. When they got nowhere to look, they look up. They look up because God is with His people. The second story that my mind goes to when I'm in trial or tragedy is the story of the sun standing still from Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. In Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, the Israelites are fighting against an army of enemies. They're going about the conquest of the land of promise, and they know that if the sun sets and night falls, that this army they're battling against will find refuge in the caves and hills of the reason that, uh, of the region that they're fighting in. And so the Israelites pray to God and cry out to God for more time as darkness falls, when it seems like night is closing in and there's no hope for victory. They look ahead knowing that God has already made a way. And in their prayers, they find strength and the power of God manifest as God literally causes the sun to stand still. Another story that comes to my mind often in the middle of trial is the story of the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings 17. And in the 14th through the 16th verses, the widow and Elijah are having a conversation. He says, ma'am, please. I'm famished. I've got to have something to eat. Is there any way you can satiate my need for food? She says, sir, I I actually was just headed home to prepare the last of the food that I have for my son and myself. And then we were going to prepare to die because we've got nothing left. And Elijah says, if you'll just make some for me first and then make some for you and your son, you'll find that your oil and flour never run dry. And in life, when it seems like we're running out of resources or we're at the end of our rope or there's just not enough, whatever the commodity we need is left to sustain us, all we have to do in life is look again, take a second look, and God will provide. I think a fourth story from the Old Testament that's meaningful for me, and this is probably one of the first stories I learned as a child is from Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 to 23. This is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel's cast in a den of lions that are probably hungry and being just a man, he knew that that was likely a death sentence. And in the middle of the darkness of that pit and the danger of the situation, Daniel depends on the power and might of his God. The same way all of us should in that kind of a situation. When you're in, when you're surrounded on all sides and there's nowhere to look, look up. When the darkness closes in and it seems like night is literally falling on you, look ahead. When you're running out of resources and it seems like there's nothing left, take a second look. And when you're in danger, even if you'd find yourself staring down a half dozen lions, don't look. Because God will take care of the situation for you. A few chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks directly to this. I think this is probably why he says finally at the beginning of verse 10. Because this is the sum of everything he's been trying to say. 
Ephesians 6.10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The Apostle Paul has been trying to get this point across again and again and again and again. And in Ephesians 3.20, he says, unto him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly above anything that we could think or ask. That's God. That's the God that you serve. When your best intuition or intellect says in your situation, there is no way, you have to remember that God always makes a way. So I don't know what it's going to take in your life, but I know that some of you under the sound of my voice are right in the middle of the situation that needs this kind of transformational power. My plea to you this morning is to be ready, be willing, and access it because it's free for the taking. Let's go to Ephesians 6.11 now. And in talking about being war ready, the Apostle Paul here starts to give us some idea of what the nature of the battle we're in is like. Ephesians 6.11, the Apostle says this, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The reality of the war that you fight is there's an enemy who is scheming and plotting against you. If we look at scripture in its entirety, we see our enemy, the devil, described in a number of ways. First, I'd ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 13. This is the aftermath of the fall of mankind. God comes to Adam and Eve and he looks at Eve and he says to her, woman, what is this that you have done? What have you done? The last part of that verse, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. A part of the enemy's schemes in your life involved deception. So if you've ever been deceived before, what's happened in that situation is somebody's mixed a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie. Now in all those stories I mentioned in the Old Testament, the enemy was likely hard at work in the minds of all those key players saying, you're, in the, you're right in front of the Red Sea, there is no way you can cross. The truth is that Moses of his own strength can't find a way across. But in the strength of God, he finds a way. Joshua battling an army that he knows if the sun sets and falls and darkness surrounds the, the Israelites, that there's no way they can experience victory. But the deceit in that is that even with God, victory is impossible. And we could go on and on through the Old Testament, but whatever the situation is in your life, the enemy is going to mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie. This is what he says to Eve. Eve, you'll surely become like God if you eat this fruit, knowing the difference between good and evil. Now, there's some truth in that because in eating the fruit, Eve does become aware of good and evil. Is she like God in that moment? That's the lie. Not only is the enemy going to try and deceive and either discourage or tempt, but he's also going to try to steal from you. John 10.10, Jesus puts it like this. The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. These are all terms that are terminal. In other words, if I'm going to steal something from you, my intent is not to ever give that thing back. 
And as a matter of fact, if I'm going to steal something from you, I'm probably going to try and frame somebody around you as the guilty party to keep myself off of the hook. And that's the exact strategy the enemy has used in my life time and time and time again. So much so that I'm even tempted to blame God for some of the difficulty and trial I face in life. But it's not just to, it's not just to steal something from you. And yes, He wants to steal your peace. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your purpose or your passion. But those other two words in John 10.10 are equally valuable and important in figuring out how to get war ready. If I'm killing a deer, which I probably won't because I'm a terrible hunter and shot this deer season. But if I kill a deer, I'm I'm not assuming that the deer is going to resurrect back to life. That's the nature of hunting. I'm going to try to feed my family with the animal. Now, I'm the kind of hunter where I would think that I had killed a deer, and I open my eyes after closing them to pull the trigger uh, to see the deer happily prancing away, and I would probably try to convince myself of some sort of spiritual, uh, spiritually involved resurrection at that point. And if you're going to destroy someone or something, the idea is to completely erase it off the face of the earth. Not to bring it back, not to give it a little spot to grow. We're fighting some weeds in our flower beds right now. I want to destroy those babies. And I am trying to find the roundup that will completely eradicate them. Don't sell me, Mr. Lowe's employee, something that's just going to make them turn brown and then spring back up to life stronger and more nasty than before I sprayed the roundup on them. I want something that completely destroys them. This is the nature of the battle that we fight. But it's not one that you can see, which is what makes it so easy for us to be deceived into thinking that he really doesn't want to steal something from us or that he's not trying to kill us or destroy our families. So let's talk about Revelation 12.10. Another way the enemy is described is as an accuser. This is John the Revelator talking about the nature of the enemy who is accusing our brethren and is now cast down who accused them before our God, how often? Day and night. Now, day and night is the piece there that I really want to key in on because the implication here is that the accuser never, ever takes a break. This is a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year war. There's no weekends There's no evenings, there's no lunch breaks, there's no paid time off, and there's no Family Medical Leave Act. That means if that's true, right now, under the sound of my voice or tuning in via live stream, you are, right now, in the middle of a war. Right now. And then the enemy's trying to distract you by thinking about something you got going on after church, or what's happened in your week last week, or what's coming up in your week this week, or your finances, or your career, or your family, or your friends. Anything he can to keep you disconnected from God's truth. You should never, ever take for granted any moment that you are actually in the fight of your life. Let's move ahead in our text now to Ephesians 6.12. We've talked about the power of God, the strength of God. We've talked about the schemes of the enemy. Now let's talk about the nature of our struggle. Ephesians 6.12 says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and authorities 
and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I'm going to break this down for you in three ways. The first and most important based on the text is for us to clearly accept the reality that our struggle is spiritual. Our struggle is spiritual. Ephesians uh, 6.13 makes that clear. The text I want to go to is Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10 and verse 10, the Bible says this. This is Daniel talking. An angel in a vision comes. And in verse uh, 10, we pick up the story. Behold, a hand touched me, which set me on my knees and upon the palms of my hands. He's on his hands and knees now. And he, the angel, said to me, Daniel, a man greatly beloved... Understand the words that I speak unto you and stand upright, for unto you am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and discipline yourself before God. Your words were heard, and I have come as a result of your words. Verse 13, listen to this. But the prince of, per, of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So this is Daniel having a vision of an angel coming to him and disclosing the nature, a snapshot of some of the spiritual battle Daniel was fighting. Now, if you go to the book of Jude and look at the middle part of the book of Jude, Jude also talks about a story where Michael, the archangel, and the devil are disputing about the body of Moses. So these are the two most commonly referenced texts as it relates to the nature of our spiritual struggle. So how long did it take before Daniel received a messenger from the Lord? 21 days. There's a length of time there where Daniel's not hearing from the Lord And that has nothing to do with Daniel's lack of fervent praying. That has nothing to do with whether or not God's actually heard the prayer. And it has everything to do with the reality of the spiritual battle that we're fighting. Some of you are in the waiting room. You're seeking God. You're trying to get discernment. You need vision. You need clarity. You need direction. And because of the spiritual battle that is literally raging around you, It's sometimes hard to get that clarity, and that might not be on you. Now, here's here's an issue with this. There are two extremes to the view that I'm talking about here. One is to pretend like this is all allegorical and doesn't apply. That's That's spiritual avoidance behavior. There is a spiritual battle going on. That's what Paul just said in Ephesians 6. There is a war, and the war is against things that you can't see. Spiritual forces. We talked about it in Daniel 10. We talked about it in Jude. There's another angle where all that there is that we fight against is of the spiritual realm. And we've got to bind up demons and we've got to find their names and we've got to go out on limbs to exercise spirits. And we get totally obsessed with that spiritual realm and not with the other components of the conflict. The Apostle uh, Paul wants us to know there's a war that first it's spiritual What are the other two pieces of that triangle of war that we're in? I want you to go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. First, church, your struggle is spiritual. 
There really are spiritual forces at work against you, and that's fact. Second, your struggle is external with the world around you. Your struggle is external with the world around you. Second Peter 2.20 says this, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause there. Peter's talking about people who are saved. If these people have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, those are saved individuals. Those are Christians. So if Christians, what, are again entangled in the world, in the corruption of the world, and are overcome, what happens to those individuals? They're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. And what was it that led those individuals away? It was the corruption and nastiness of the world, the sexual immorality, the idolatry. The perversion, the low morality, the, the, easy, the easy to acquire anything culture that you and I live in day to day. Based on the text, 2 Peter 2.20, it's at work against you trying to corrupt you and lead you away to become entangled again in that culture. And so the way I see all this working together is that there are these spiritual forces that are influencing And are real. And are trying to lead you away from Christ. And the easiest, simplest way they're doing that is in the culture around you. So what does that mean? That's what we just finished preaching about. Get separate and different from the culture. Look different as Christians. Act different as Christians. Think different as Christians. Speak differently as Christians. And then you'll remove yourself through the power, through the mighty power of God... Such that you're not as vulnerable to that part of the struggle. Can I get a witness this morning? Y'all seem either tired or intimidated. And I'm hoping it's intimidating. So the struggle is spiritual. The struggle is external. And the struggle is also internal. Let's go to James chapter 1 verse 14. The Bible says this. Each person is tempted. Trent, you're tempted When you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Man, I'm one of these guys that's got a lot of baggage. I don't know if you're like me, but I got lots of baggage from my life before Jesus. Probably way more sin, seriously, than any of you in this room I had before I came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been forgiven, and I've been totally transformed, and I've been healed, seriously, of just about any addiction or malady that's spiritual or physical, that you can imagine under the sun. But there is still that side of me that thinks in selfish, self-centered, addicted, sin-sick ways that I regularly, daily, have to put to death as, and live as a living sacrifice, trying to crucify and kill those sides of me that would lead me away into some of the same sins I've been delivered from day after day after day after day. So if that's one end of the continuum, the other end of the continuum is Christians who have had it relatively easy. Christians who have kind of had a mediocre life that grew up in church, that didn't struggle with major nasty sinful stuff, that found Jesus, that are attending church on Sunday, that are totally oblivious to their mediocrity. And they think everything is just fine because I'm still doing what I've always done. And on either extreme, 
The end result is the same if we allow ourselves to do the things that are easiest for our flesh to want to do. If I allow myself to be a Sunday morning only Christian and sit on the sidelines and never get actively involved in the war and I'm never war ready, I'm sinning. If I've been through misery and despair and sin sickness before my conversion to Jesus Christ and I allow myself to be led away into some of that same junk, it's sin. But either way, it's sin. It doesn't matter my background. And if the enemy can either lull me to sleep or re-ensnare me in some of my old junk, he has succeeded. And this is what the Apostle Paul's plea is. He's saying, finally, now I get to sum up everything I've wanted to tell you up to this point. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Realize there's going to be a scheming enemy and that the struggle is real. And he concludes by saying, just stand. This is Ephesians 6, 10, 13. The Bible says this. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, when you've done all you can do, just stand. So there's a couple of things I want to mention about this in conclusion. The first thing is, it seems to me, that the Apostle Paul's assumption is that Christians are not war ready. And I think if the Apostle Paul had you in a room, in private, and you were talking one-on-one, I think he would say to you what he'd probably say to me. You're not war ready. You're not war ready. You've been coasting through. You've been undisciplined. You haven't been diligent. You really haven't been pursuing Jesus Christ. You've just been pretending to pursue Him. So you know what? You need to put on God's armor. That He has to tell us to put it on is sad. He should have, he should have been able to say here in Ephesians 6.13, Keep wearing. Keep fighting. Keep battling. But instead He's got to go back to the beginning and say... You need to actually put this stuff on. God didn't give it to you so you could just read it in His Word or look at it in a church in other people's lives. He gave it so you could wear it, so you could be war ready. That's why our culture lacks transformation is because we're too busy trying to find ways to sit on the sidelines and pretend like we're in the game than actually get our tails in the game. Here's another piece of this too. He references the day of evil. And I think this is where a lot of the deception piece comes in. So, so you know, there's the, uh, there's the blood moon phenomenon that's happening. And there's a lot of people talking about, you know, end of time and prophecy and all this stuff. This is what I think about all that. I'm not looking for any other sign or prophecy to be fulfilled to predict that the Lord Jesus Christ could return. As far as I'm concerned, everything that needs to happen has happened. And so I think the enemy, though, would like for us to say, No, man, right here it says, When the evil day comes, and brother or sister, you've got time. You've got time. It's not that evil. It's not that urgent. Go ahead and build your retirement fund. Go ahead and raise your family. Go ahead and build your new house or Re, redo your whole wardrobe or, or choose a different career path or redefine yourself in the middle of life. Don't, don't worry about all this. It's only for the day of evil. And the blood moons haven't even come yet. 
you've got at least till tonight at 7.30. And I'm trying to say that facetiously. I don't, I, maybe these guys are good theologians. I'm not, a, I'm not the greatest theologian. Maybe these guys are top tier. They're speaking about this stuff. But if the enemy can get you on the sidelines for one second, he's won. The second you're distracted and you take for granted, I've got, enough, I've got a little bit more time. It's not that urgent. It's not that critical. Right now, I'm just, right now I'm just going to deal with this one thing. And friend, I want to tell you, right now today is the day of evil. And this second, those forces of evil are going to try to destroy everything you hold dear. And simply because some of you can't see it with your physical eyes, you're acting as though it doesn't exist. You're, you're, you're not in God's Word. You're self-centered. You're selfish. You're arrogant. And yet you're pretending to be humble. You're a Sunday morning only Christian that pretends to be a Christian 24-7. You don't really want the disciplined Christian life because you're not really convinced that there is a, a war and that you should be war ready. And some of you might say, man, Trent, that, that man, that's really harsh. There's 1,500 people in this room. Are you telling me that some? No, no. Some of you are doing it. Some of you are really living it, man. You are in the trenches, war-ready Christians who are battling and battle-weary and beat up and scarred and broken. And the last part of Ephesians six thirteen is for you. The Apostle Paul would say, if you're one of those guys who's got the armor on, and the sword out, and I'm in the trenches, and I'm battling, and I'm struggling, and I'm bruised, and I'm beat up, but I'm trusting, and I have faith, then the Apostle Paul would say, you keep standing your ground. You keep standing up. Stay committed. Stay resolved. Just like Moses walking into the Red Sea. Just like Joshua as the sun starts to set. Just like the widow of Zarephath, who knew there was no way her family was going to survive. Just like Daniel, as he gets tossed in the den of lions, you stay strong and keep standing. And then when everything, every ounce of strength, every last bit of effort has been expended on staying committed and on staying resolved, just when it seems like night is going to fall or the enemy army is going to surround you or they're going to escape or you're going to eat your last possible meal or you're going to get devoured by the nastiness of your conflict, then just give it one more ounce. Just a little bit more. I think that if the Apostle Paul could speak to us today, he would say, that's my secret, Trent. That's how I did it. That's how I really, really did it. There's nothing special or miraculous or unique about me. But every time, every second I found myself in that place where I couldn't take even another step and was just about to collapse. I did everything I could. I mustered my strength and I just stood there. And the mighty power of God washed over me and my situation and the outcome was even greater than anything I could have imagined. It didn't even make sense. I didn't even consider some of this as a possibility, he would say. It was beyond what my wildest dreams could even comprehend. I just gave it one last centimeter of effort. I went into the reserve store and I gave it everything I could. And man, God, wow, 
He really did exceedingly abundantly above anything I could have even imagined. And man, I don't know what I don't know what the situation is out there, but you're in one of those two camps. You're either not war ready or you're the war weary, beaten up soldier. And to each of you I would say, just stand. Just stand. You serve a God who's the ruler of the universe and he knows intimately. He's been there every step of those journeys. And he's right there today. And maybe this morning is when you take that last little bit of stand. We're going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to pray and and I'm going to close. And and, and we're going to give you the opportunity to stand. Stand up and come forward and just lay your burdens down before Jesus. Come to the front of of this room. And we're going to surround you with love and encouragement. We want to pray over you if you need to get baptized into Christ. If you need, uh, or a loved one needs to be healed, or you're just ready to get in the war and really be war ready, whatever your need is, after I pray and while we sing, take the opportunity to respond. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Wow. To, to just know that you're on our side, that you're for us. How can we even put into words how grateful we are for that? God, I just... I just ask in the name of Jesus that you would prepare us over these upcoming weeks to become war ready. War ready. We want to be ready. And we want to be used by you. If there are any under the sound of my voice who aren't ready, strengthen them to get ready and to come forward and to lift and, and to be lifted up by this church. If there are those who are ready, who are in the middle of a battle that just seems bigger than them, strengthen them to stand to put that last ounce of reserve effort that they got into letting this church lift them up and encourage them. God, we trust you and we acknowledge your power and majesty and we thank you for today in Jesus' name. Amen.